Hi, and welcome to episode 5 of the Airflow podcast, produced by Astronomer. In the first four episodes of this series, we've begun a deep investigation into Apache Airflow and have examined its origins, use cases, best practices, and competitors. This week, we'll take a look at some of the pain points folks have experienced with Airflow. It's been a while since our last episode, and I apologize for that. We have some exciting things in the works. Going forward, expect much more regular content. We've taken the past month to synthesize feedback we've received on the podcast and hone our approach to interviewing and editing, which will hopefully make for a better listening experience. Thanks for bearing with us as we work to produce regular, high-quality content, and please keep the feedback coming as we've found it all extremely helpful. This week, we'll examine conversations with both old guests and new to paint a comprehensive picture of Airflow's pain points. While we still undoubtedly believe that Airflow is the future of ETL, it's important to acknowledge that any incubating project will have issues, and bringing those issues to the forefront of the community's attention will help shape the future of the project. We'll talk with Thomas LaPiana, data engineer at Order My Gear, Frank Zhu, data engineer at Minds.io, and Alan Cruikshank, business insights and data manager at Tails.com. We'll begin with an excerpt from our discussion with Thomas. Hope you enjoy. Cool. Um, so why don't we start with just like some intro on you, kind of uh, what you do, where you are, what your company does, and kind of that whole shebang. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my name is Thomas Lapiana. I'm a software engineer, uh, but really right now kind of more of a data engineer. We all share the software engineer title here. Um, and I work at a company called Order My Gear. And what we do is um, specialize in team sports um, and, and kind of giving them an online store. Um, so say there's a high school team at, you know, some, say a basketball high school team, and they all want to order their gear, and uh, hence the name, order my gear. And, uh, you know, maybe the mom wants to order some, you know, hoodies and things like that. Uh, basically, they, they can set up this store, <clears throat> and then the coach can email out a link to all the, you know, kids and their parents. They can go onto the store, and it's kind of like a one-stop shop for anything that that team might need. Um, so could be, you know, if it's baseball, it could be ordering like gear and pads and stuff like that, uh, or it could be ordering kind of related merchandise. Um, like I said, hoodies, you know, shirts, things like that. Cool. Sounds awesome. Um, and then is your background in traditional software development or like, uh, we've talked to some people who are like, oh yeah, I used to like, uh, like much more on the AI side and moved to data engineering. Uh, so kind of like, how'd you find yourself doing what you're doing? Yeah. Um, I'm not, a computer scientist by education. I was a poli-sci major, um, but towards the end of that degree, kind of realized that that's not what I wanted to do and that actually software was much more interesting. Uh, so right out of school, I got a job as a data intelligence consultant, uh, and that was actually my first time using Python and like a Postgres database and kind of building a pretty simple um, data pipeline to get data out of an API. And, and transform in the database and so I, I came more from the business analyst side um, but then the uh, the technical aspect of that role is what really intrigued me so I just kept kind of moving further back end uh, and that's how I ended up as a as a data engineer cool um, that's kind of the same thing that happened to me where first so astronomer is kind of my first job and the yeah. first thing was like get data from this API and put it into this database um, and it just kind of grows on from there yeah absolutely cool um, 
Yeah. So why don't you want to tell a little bit about uh, Order My Gears, like data infrastructure, um, like kind of what how what it was like when you started and kind of what it is now, and we'll like segue that into how you guys are using Airflow. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we didn't have a data team really as of like kind of mid to late last year. Uh, sometime around halfway through the year, we hired a, a business analyst and started using Looker. Um, because before that, we just kind of had our, our developers write some stuff in JavaScript and, and kind of simple stuff like that. Uh, but we really decided, like, as the business is growing uh, very quickly, you know, there's definitely something to be said for you know, being able to access your data and, and analyze it and make good choices based off that. And so we hired a, a business analyst uh, who's really good at Looker and started kind of getting those dashboards up and running. Um, but what we quickly found was that kind of the, the pretty basic infrastructure we had in place was not up to the task of the things we wanted to do with our data. Um, so we basically just had a very simple uh, piece of software called Metrics that was uh, kind of listening over the network for you know, API calls and things like that. And it would you know, grab that information that it saw and, and throw it into BigQuery. Um, it was very inflexible, uh, you know, not, couldn't really backfill data. Um, that was a very manual process. Um, and so quickly, you know, as we, we have this really powerful tool being Looker, and we want to do all these cool things with it, we very quickly ran into kind of the limits of what we could do with that. Um, and, you know, it had served us well for about two or three years. It was written in Go, uh, but it, we kind of realized it was time to build out something more full-featured and kind of more industry standard. And so uh, that's kind of where I came in last fall, uh, about November, kind of joined the data team. So it was, you know, the business analyst and I and our manager and started to just kind of do research into figuring out like what, you know, what infrastructure is going to kind of fix all the problems that we're having currently. And then also kind of give us the flexibility to grow into other areas we want to uh, down the line. And so we're, we're a microservices architecture uh, using Docker and Kubernetes for all the rest of our software. So we figured, you know, might as well stick with that pattern and, you know, figure out how to get whatever our data infrastructure is going to be into that. Um, so kind of going around along that same line, um, if you could if you could snap your fingers and have one like major feature that you want added to the project, uh, what would it be and why? Mm, so you talking about uh, Airflow specifically, like a, a new Airflow feature? Yeah, a new Airflow feature, or like some direction you want the project to go. Yeah, that's uh, that is a really fantastic question. Um, I mean, I, I guess you know for now, at least for our use case, uh, it's doing everything we want it to. Um, you know, I can't think of anything. <laughs> I maybe would have had to prepare a little bit more, but <laughs> no worries. Um, you, know, you know, I do have one. Um, I think stability on uh, lower resource machines, right? Uh, mm -hmm. The biggest pain point for us, at least starting out, right, is these, we don't have a lot of things running. We don't need to have a huge pod for it. But say there's like once a day when you know, five jobs get run, right? You know, we have we just have a few things to run daily and some stuff runs hourly. So at that one time per day, you have a lot more jobs running than normal. Uh, and sometimes what we would see if we didn't have enough resources is the scheduler would just kind of freeze. It just didn't know what to do. It would queue stuff, but it would never pick it up and run it. Um, and it would never throw any errors. Uh, you couldn't put a timeout on it because the job hadn't actually gotten picked up yet. So it was just really weird, silent failures like that. 
um, that we just had to deal with. And, and it took me a while to figure out, oh, it just needs more resources, right? Because it was just pretty much purely silent failures. I think a lot of the um, kind of reliability around the scheduler, uh, and, and I know it's come a long way even from like 1.8 to 1.9, especially with backfilling, things like that. But I think that's something I'd really like to see is just uh, just maybe more reliability around that. And, you know, if you are, maybe it has a better plan of how to deal with, if it doesn't have enough resources, it'll, you know, throw some kind of error, let you know, instead of just kind of silently failing and hoping you notice that it's not doing anything. Yeah. Um, should, uh, one of our devs, Taylor, uh, he kind of has the same thing where sometimes tasks will just sit stuck in the queued state. Yeah. And then, like, yeah. if you clear them out, they'll run again. But, like, there's no clear indication as, like, why is it stuck in queued? Um, yeah, and for, exactly. I guess there's like a race condition somewhere deep in the scheduler that like causes some weird behavior. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it's something that I dug deep into the issue at one point, but it was something with, um, you know, the the scheduler was knowing to queue it, but somehow the workers weren't seeing it to be able to pick it up. And yeah, it was, it was something weird, but um, I think really just kind of that, but, you know, it seems like they're going in that direction anyway. And, and, I do love kind of all the all the cloud support. You know, it was pretty trivial to get um, things like logging and Google Cloud Storage and things like that. It was pretty trivial to get that stuff up and running. Um, and so it seems like they they already have a lot of kind of those nice to have features in there, especially things like with the the Slack operator. It was like you know only an extra four lines of code to uh, have a, an alert sent to Slack when something breaks, uh, which I thought was really nice. Yeah. Um, so kind of going along those same lines, uh, can you talk to me about some of the, like, on a lower, like, I guess higher level now, uh, like some best DAG writing practices that you have, you have internally? Uh, like, you try to avoid using airflow variables or, or kind of like just any, like, sub-DAGs? I know there's been a lot of, like, yes and no about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, we don't have any sub-DAGs currently. Mm -hmm. um, and basically the way we have it, and I think this is a pretty common setup, is... Um, we write uh, kind of a just a DAG template, and then we're basically just reading a, a YAML config file and then injecting values into a into a template. Um, so basically, I just have those templates completely locked down to make sure that there's nothing weird going on. So, like, I mean, like you said, um, you know, we don't use any variables, don't use any sub DAGs. Uh, there might be a time when we do or, or start looking at sensors or things like that, but um, I think someone previously on your show uh, said something that I totally agree with, which was that you know you can use Airflow with a certain set of features and it works flawlessly 100% of the time, or you can use that same Airflow with a different set of features and it's a nightmare, right? Uh, seems like st some stuff definitely causes more headaches than others. So you know we use like Bash operator, Python operator, Slack operator. Those are the only operators we're currently using, um, and you know we just kept it simple, kept it to our what we like actually need, not trying to do anything clever. Mm -hmm. And um, that's kind of what we found to be best. And, and like things with XCOM, right, when I decided that we needed to kind of add that in there, did a lot of testing and made sure that it wasn't going to cause any huge problems and, and things like that. Um, yeah, yeah our, our best practice are basically, as long as we can test stuff and we're sure it's stable, we're okay with using it, but we try to avoid some stuff that gets a little more tricky. Yeah, um, it's funny. I think uh, I read in a blog somewhere that's like, Exotic features are for the adventurous. Um, yeah. Kind of advising the same thing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Cool. Um, so, uh, kind of off topic, but uh, I'm just curious to know how's uh, how's Anaconda Con? It was it was really fantastic. Um, as someone who 
is definitely on the more data engineering side. It's always good to see what those crazy data scientists are up to. <laughs> yeah. um, and and it's kind of interesting, you know, even from a year ago, you know, even just a year later at this year's the just the topics have shifted so much, you know, a year ago, I don't think I, I saw a single talk on like transfer learning and convolutional neural networks. And there were probably at least four or five talks this year about that. Um, like that is just seeming to have exploded in the last year. Yeah, um, it's kind of funny, like what the data scientists are up to is going to like determine what the data engineers need to do. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Yeah, very <laughs> much so. Yeah, um, it's like, I, yeah I thought it was really interesting too. There were, there were a few talks on kind of like packaging and containerization and stuff in general. Um, and that was that was like kind of a side talk last year, like a very small little discussion. And this year it was huge and in multiple presentations. Um, and so I guess, you know, you know, it wasn't just us, but like a lot of the industry is seeing that kind of containerized data engineering and data science is, is kind of the way to go. Um, so I was kind of surprised to see that that was such a huge focus. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting, right? Cause I feel like the containerization parts happen a lot on the data engineering side before the data science side. Yeah, um, absolutely. It's almost like anticipating that need because I feel that's kind of how everything's going to go, you know, like containerization one, like. I'm ranting right now, but it's almost like a microservice if you kind of abstract it out enough, you know, like yeah. one thing that only does one thing. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that was really great. And there were a few tools that I saw. Um, I'll, I'll plug it here as well because it blew my mind. But there's a uh, something called Python Fire. It's written by Google. Uh, and it basically, and this is going to sound like a, a crazy oversimplification, but uh, in one line of code, you can give any script a command line interface. Um, it's pretty impressive. I know a lot of people use Click. I had previously used Click, but uh, Python Fire really does make it extremely easy to kind of give a CLI to anything you want to run. Um, so I definitely suggest looking at that if you haven't heard of it. Python Fire, yeah. I'll definitely yeah. look into that. Thanks so much to Thomas for coming on. and look to hear from him more in the coming weeks as we explore his setup of Airflow and Kubernetes. Next, we have Frank Zhu from Minds.io. We'll hear about Frank's use case and the troubles he's experienced getting Airflow stood up for a three-person team. Enjoy. So start the back, just tell me a little bit about Minds.io. Uh, so Minds, we are building um, financial services for emerging markets. Um, so starting out with uh, microfinance loans, we're moving into savings, we're moving into uh, just building this uh, uh, full service uh, financial platform for uh, markets. Um, a lot of times, you know, um, in emerging markets, there is no access to credit. Um, there's no such thing as um, uh, like getting bank loans, right? Because even that, they require uh, all this paperwork, all these red tape, and most people don't have access or get rejected uh, for any type of credit. Um, so, you know, getting apartments might take a two-year down payment or um, interest rates are skyrocketing. Um, because just the uh, financial, you know, infrastructure is just so unstable there. So we're trying to really reconcile things. Uh, we see there's just this uh, huge opportunity, right, uh, out in emerging markets. Um, you know, if history will tell, you know, I think PayPal and Visa have done, you know, tremendous wonders here in the states. And so we can only uh, hope, you know, um, we can only guess that that it'll it'll do wonders there as well. Yeah, awesome. Um, and then can you say a little bit about your own background? Yeah, uh, I started out actually doing quantitative trading, quantitative trading in uh, Citigroup. Uh, so I was doing that after a while. Um, this was um, after right, right out of academia. I did math in my undergrad and grad. Um, 
mainly in probability and statistics, um, went straight into uh, quantitative trading. Um, after a while, I really got interested in more of the data science aspect of uh, things and really exploring data and seeing what I could do with it uh, beyond just trading and stocks and things like that. Um, I got actually got a call uh, from a friend of a friend to join him to do a startup out in California. Um, this was Dot and Bo's e-commerce uh, furniture company. Guessing stocks, I could guess you know furniture trends and uh, e-commerce trends and things like that. Uh, so it's actually it's exciting to me because I, I really wanted to see um, uh, what more could I do with data, right? Um, and so I jumped into the role as a data scientist. Uh, eventually, found out that that role really was more so data engineering, eighty percent of the time. Um, that's where I really got my feet wet in all this um, data engineering, data infrastructure uh, role. Uh, from then, I transitioned to become to lead data engineering team over at Gusto. Um, and there, Gusto is just, you know, again, just uh, refining sort of the tool set and skills, you know, finding out about uh, moving from Luigi to Airflow and things like that, um, testing the waters with, um, with Spark and et cetera, uh, all these things, um, sort of learning all new, new technologies in here. Uh, now I'm at Minds, um, really being a more full stack engineer, but also, you know, as a team of three right now in San Francisco, uh, highly contributing to also the BI and data. <laughs> Very nice. Well, we're pumped to have you on. Just kind of going into that a little bit, you mind telling us how you're using Airflow? Yeah. Um, so I can talk a little bit uh, previously how I've used it before and how I'm using it now. Um, yeah. Um, previously, at Augusta, we've uh, used it to ingest data from, you know, um, dozens of sources, everything from, you know, uh, Google Ads to Facebook Ads to, you know, pulling in data from all of our third-party uh, APIs from Salesforce and et cetera. Uh, we've done it pulling it to schedule pulls from our own internal databases, um, use it to schedule pulls and um, back processes from event data. Uh, we've so plowed previously. Um, so really just pulling all of that into S3, a giant fat data lake. Um, we use it to really sync up everything that's in the data lake and on you know a daily or hourly basis, uh, munch that into uh, a more readable format and dump it into Redshift, uh, one of the data warehouses that we're using. Um, and from there, it even does all the scheduling from transform data to popping off CSV reports or uh, things into Looker dashboards and et cetera. I think we have just um, a whole variety of things that we're doing with Airflow um, schedules. Um, and every time it uh, pop out Slack alerts as well, right? So I think there's no uh, limit to all the things that Airflow can do. Like I said before, right? It's the um, uh, plain and simple um, scheduler where uh, all the components are you can write yourself. Yeah. So last time we spoke, you said a little bit about how you're using Airflow to pull events, a schedule pulling from the event stream. Um, can you dive into that a bit too? Um, sorry, could you remind me real quick? Yeah. So I have this note from last time we spoke okay. that uh, one of the cool use cases you're doing is you're scheduling pulls from the event stream. Uh, is that just like your general API calls or? Uh, using Airflow to pull from event stream. So we have Snowplow that comes in. Uh, it pipes into uh, Amazon Kinesis. Um, I think it's just one big fat Kafka. Mm -hmm. Airflow that schedules and actually monitors um, how many events, you know, whether per hour, per second, that they all match up. Like there is something coming in. Uh, so we have Airflow pulling uh, Kafka, pulling uh, Kinesis, checking all that stuff is uh, up to, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so it sounds good, good at sound. Um, Excuse me? Yep, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, so you said before that uh, you kind of bailed on Snowplow in favor of Airflow. Um, kind of how did that uh, decision, how was that decision made? 
Uh, not so much bailed on uh, snowplow. Um, I think snowplow for us is really just um, uh, in an open source event tracking. Okay. Right? Uh, we, we don't currently use Airflow or I built anything in Airflow for that. Um, Airflow really just um, facilitates um, everything afterwards uh, okay. to go into S3 and data warehouse and the rest of the infrastructure. All right. Yeah. Just wanted to make sure I had that right. Awesome. Yep. Um, so then you said a little last time about how you have Airflow jobs that put data in S3, run a Spark job back to S3 and then to Redshift, um, kind of how you're handling the T of ETL. Can you mm -hmm. just dive into that a little bit? Like how are you scaling that? How are you managing that? Is anything along those lines? Mm -hmm. So uh, the way we've uh, deployed uh, Airflow in terms of uh, DevOps or infrastructure standpoint is um, we have our own Airflow uh, Docker image. And that gets deployed on every single EC2 that we launch. Um, we scale things up with Terraform in terms of uh, actual infrastructure. Um, so as needed, we can scale up different workers. You know, um, we just have this um, one scheduler and all these workers all around it um, per uh, DAG and sub DAG, right? Uh, the way we uh, schedule each sub DAG actually is um, a local executor to make sure every sub DAG runs on a single box. Mm -hmm. um, and on the rest, um, it's all backed by Celery um, with Redis. Okay, cool. Um, and can you talk about how you're orchestrating those Docker containers? Yeah, I think um, in the meantime, uh, or at least previously I was left off, it was uh, really uh, a bit manual in the sense um, scaling up the number of hosts uh, or number of boxes that we need. Um, but I definitely see um, it's a pretty, pretty uh, near-term future project to move over to Kubernetes where we don't have to manage any of that stuff. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that being a big So uh, we've kind of hit on this a little bit, but just kind of want you to expand more. Um, as you've kind of scaled up with Airflow and started using it for more and more parts of your business, kind of what challenges have you faced with how the project is when you just fork it off GitHub? Sorry, could you read that? You uh, broke off a little bit. Sorry about that. Um, so we kind of like dove into this a little bit before, but now just a full deep dive. Um, can you talk about kind of the challenges you face with Airflow? From based on like uh, just forking it off of GitHub to how you're using it now. Yeah, um, I think uh, I think so sometimes uh, common challenges I see is uh, there's definitely a lot of issues that people raise <laughs> as an open source project, um, and really I think having a different set of uh, priorities on what gets fixed and what doesn't get fixed. So I think most of the times, any any issue I'm seeing, whether it's with the schedule or how things are running or um, any types of customization I want to see or I, I need for myself, um, it's usually somewhere in the form of some issue uh, on the project that uh, I uh, build up a fix for myself. Um, and and uh, yeah, I, I think that's or pretty much the main ones. I think uh, it's really around scheduling deployments where we've done a lot of customization. You know, a lot of on the retry logics, a lot in the making subdags work for us. Um, we've uh, adopted the notion of as uh, in our call, right? Um, as uh, really bringing subdags into the picture um, to really, you know, promoting them to be more first class uh, in Airflow rather than, you know, just uh, underneath uh, the DAG. So we, every single sub DAG is, you know, self-contained, a full job that can run, um, you know, end to end. Whether it pulls the data, transforms data, and loads it somewhere else, every sub DAG does that, and they're really, um, we really built them up into their own little. Uh, 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 blocks of work, right? And so they're yeah. like sort of like skeleton copy and paste code for the entire company, whether, you know, whether, whatever report you want to run, whether it's an annual, you know, revenue report or, um, or uh, you know, ad streaming, you know, performance report and things like that. Uh, 
all that is done, you know, with just, you know, six or seven lines of Python code. Uh, that's how, you know, really reusable we built up these subdecks. Cool. So kind of what, what led you to that decision? Was that something that you saw that doing that would kind of build a bridge for somebody who doesn't have a certain skill and give them a certain skill or capability? Yeah. So we built it to be pretty flexible and um, easy to use, especially for end users that are non-technical. Um, we, um, Kept, we, we kept thinking, well, who would be the main users of Airflow, right? Uh, primarily, it wouldn't uh, be too much, too many engineers, right? A lot of the product engineers would be fo focused on the product. Um, and the same way, they um, they probably wouldn't need to do so much analysis, right? These these analysts and these data scientists primarily wouldn't uh, really be coding mm -hmm. at, at all, right? I think that's the ideal. You don't want a data scientist writing um, your ETL code or stuff like that. I think you really want to just have them uh, for the most part, focus on what they're good at. And so what we wanted to do is really um, empower them with Airflow to just write a couple lines of code and dump their SQL file, what they need to see, and it'll it'll be there at whatever time they schedule. Um, cool. So, uh, so I have that right. You've kind of rigged something so that you can just dump a SQL file into something and get it translated into a DAG? Excuse me? Uh, so you, we spoke of this a little bit last time, but uh, you had... You had some sort of template that um, you just put a SQL file in there and it gets turned into a DAG. Yeah. So uh, the way we've um, the way we wired up sort of uh, writing in Airflow or, or having uh, everyone in the company internally contribute to Air Airflow, um, the way they want to schedule up their DAGs is just this uh, really skeleton Python file. Uh, all it does is more or less just point to a SQL file because I think about you know ninety five percent of the use case uh, within the company um, is to create uh, reports out of SQL. Um, and so um, it just points to a SQL file. The SQL file gets validated. Everything gets you know run on a sandbox environment before it gets popped up to prod. But this way, I think it helps uh, both the end users, the, our, our analysts, and for you know the engineers maintaining everything to ensure that, um, one, that uh, their jobs run yep. you know, correctly and properly. And it's super simple. All it does run SQL. And two, uh, I think for my sanity that all dependencies actually work out. Um, so one of the cool things that we're doing is because it's all subdags, we can actually place it all over the place. Um, one of the, uh, another, again, going back to your previous question of things that uh, I would probably like to see improved is uh, sort of the UI aspect, right? I think it's pretty easy to pop everything into uh, its own DAG, but then your UI and searching for a DAG or seeing what job, et cetera, uh, might blow up the UI and run out of memory on your, uh, on your browser. Um, so it's pretty nice popping into everything into subdags. Um, there's not need to worry about where to schedule it downstream of what or upstream of what. Um, uh, that's that's been pretty helpful. Um, and this way, I can you know run my own end-to-end uh, -end testing of CI running every single DAG. Um, and really, uh, we've automated the process of um, figuring out where in the dependency tree your job needs to be. Right? You can just scan through the SQL file pretty easily, finding every table that's related to, and uh, put it somewhere in that tree. Thanks so much to Frank for coming on. We've spoken to a lot of folks using Airflow on larger teams, so it's really interesting to hear from someone working to get it stood up at a true startup. Next, in the last interview of this episode, we have Alan Crookshank, Business Insights and Data Manager at Tails.com. You may recognize him, as we had him on a few weeks ago to discuss best practices, but we enjoyed so much what he had to say about pain points that we felt it necessary to include him again here. Hope you enjoy. Cool. 
so uh, I'm Alan Kirkshank. I look after data and analytics here at Tails.com. We are an online pet food subscription business based in the UK. Uh, and we've been going for uh, probably three or four years now. Um, I think, I guess, back, background to the business, um, one, of our, one of our founders was a vet and realized that when you have a, a sick pet, a lot of the time the vet will put it on a prescription diet um, to help it get better. Um, and there's lots of great research out there that good quality nutrition and the right nutrients going into a dog will help it live happier and longer. And effectively, we've taken that and we're applying it to dogs that aren't sick yet. So the technology is there now for us to provide a, a custom blend of food for every pet that we supply food to. Um, and we do that. We ship the food every month direct to their door um, with a recipe that's unique to them. Cool. Um, that sounds great. And you want to give some background on yourself? Definitely. So I actually, I, I came into this in a slightly odd way. Um, so I'm background as, a, as an engineer, not as a software engineer, as a, as a I guess, a physical engineer. And so trained in, in mechanical and production engineering and spent around three years helping factories around Europe uh, either make more stuff or make the same amount of stuff with less money. Um, and I guess what that on the surface but on the surface, that's all about solving technical problems. Now, what it actually is, and, and this is, has parallels to all kinds of businesses, is that it's about helping groups of people get stuff done. And sometimes what's in the way of that is a, is a technical problem. And sometimes the technical problem is just a sign that there's actually something else going on. Um, and after my time there, I was looking for something that involved a little bit less travel, something that I could really get my teeth into. And I guess something that's a bit more your own baby rather than being uh, on the outside. Uh, and that's, I came across the guys here at, at Tails. Uh, you know, I'd worked with some of them before in, in various other things um, and things lined up in the right way for me to join the team here. And I guess it's a, a slightly odd parallel that now I'm, I'm much more, I guess like you, Varaj, I'm, I'm much more of a data engineer, data analyst kind of guy. Um, but I think that the common aspect there is is using data, using information, using technology to help solve real problems and help uh, help people to do things that they couldn't do. Um, can you talk about some of the, like kind of the pain points you've had with the airflow as you've scaled up or started deploying more DAGs or anything along those lines, apart from what we just said? I think, let's think through the pain points. Um, I, I guess there's, there's an obvious pain point. I think this is more a pain point around Python than anything else of uh, memory errors. Uh, if you're doing a lot of stuff in a task, it just it may just fall over, and you might not get a whole lot of warning around that. Um, and I think that's that's something partly that's one of the reasons that we that we used Dask so so extensively was so that if there was an error, we'd get a little bit more feedback from it. Um, but uh, that's continually there, and I think that's 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 Python, right? Um, I think the the other pain point that we'd had uh, is actually around. We've been we've now been running Airflow for eighteen months, maybe two years, um, and uh, it's gone through a lot of changes in that that point. Um, and uh, it it's become such a critical part of our infrastructure that 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 means that upgrading it and keeping up with you know on one side you want to keep up with the changes that are being released upstream, at the same time upgrading it and making sure that everything still works or past, past the upgrade can sometimes be quite painful. Um, and I think there was, the, there was a relatively big upgrade 
you guys will probably remember this much, much better than me, I, around six months, five, six months ago, um, yeah. which I know it, you know, flushing out all of the changes, that all of the, the issues that that pushed through onto our like homegrown, homegrown uh, operators, that took a, a good week or good week or two, um, and was was not the most fun thing to do. Um, but I guess, given the choice, right? We either we, we could have kept our old version of Airflow running, and I think it was be, because we wanted to get at some of the newer features that are out there. You know, it's worth going through the pain to keep up with the with the development. And I think that that's only it's only been painful on a couple of the bigger upgrades. I think the the minor version upgrades don't usually throw up anything, and it's yeah. really difficult. Yeah, actually, I think the other thing it might be worth talking about here on pain points is, and this might be more interesting to people who are using Airflow with Dask as well. That's actually introduced one of our other our other pain points is that is because effectively we use the Airflow worker as the the client for a Dask process. It's the one it is it has a context, it has a Dask context and it is kicking off tasks to run on a cluster. Um, we've actually had to be really careful about version drift between our Dask cluster and our Airflow cluster because we're deploying them separately. They're two separate systems, but at the same time, it matters a lot that the versions of each of the Python libraries on either side are the same. Um, and you know, the, I, there have been at least four or five times over the last 12 months where an issue did, there was some issue that came up and it looked like some really hairy issue. I mean, for example, on one side, it looked like S3 had stopped responding to us. <laughs> um, and what it turned out to be was just version drift. Yeah, yeah. and now it, it super deep down the stack between our Dask cluster and an Airflow cluster. Um, and it meant we've got to get really pretty anal about version pinning various key libraries between the two. Um, yeah. And that, that's, been, that's been kind of tricky. For sure. Um, so it's funny you mentioned the uh, like upgrades, right? So uh, part of our offering is a cloud Airflow offering, um, and we're on one eight, and we're still trying to figure out the best way to move to one nine without uh, without breaking a lot of those uh, operator dependencies, right? Because like it's just like little things where the one nine operators, like all the AWS stuff, has a base AWS hook, whereas before it didn't. So like, and then the logging difference too. So yeah, I definitely hear that with just little things that aren't breaking changes, but you want these new features and it takes a little while to move it over. Yeah, I think with, I guess it, this is going to start sounding like the cult of Maxime Beauchemin, but like one of the other things, he, one of the things he talked about in the article was around um, how some of the DevOps stuff that's helped traditional software development hasn't really filtered through into uh, the data engineering world yet. Yeah. Um, and that means some of the stuff that would make this easier if we if we kept kept pace with what was going on around like comprehensive integration testing and you know staging environments and all of this stuff there would make that a lot easier, but because of the scale of the work that we're doing, uh, you know setting up a multi terabyte staging environment is is a not cheap and b not trivial, um, yeah. and that means that. You know, in theory, yeah, sure. I mean, you just spin up a replica of the whole stack on your laptop and just run it through some unit tests. But when you're dealing with a distributed system where it doesn't fit on one laptop, and that's why it's a distributed system in the first place, <laughs> it, it makes a lot of these testing practices, which would make upgrades like the one you're talking about easy, it, it makes them harder. And I think there's a lot of work for, for people like us to do over the next few years to bring some bring data engineering back up to scratch. Yeah. Um, I think from like 
definitely what you said about the, uh, the best testing practices. We've had a lot of that too, because, uh, because it's just like a system agnostic task orchestrator and you're integrating with like all these different systems, like a client's S3 bucket, your own S3 bucket, someone else's S3, like you don't know kind of where the error lies and you're like, wait, is it with my code? Is it with the code I'm referencing from this external system? Like, is it something with the task isn't getting passed through through multiple nodes? Like there's just so many layers that something can break. It just takes forever to debug anything. I think actually one of the, one of the, the nice features of Airflow, um, which I guess came from a different use case, is the is the connection abstraction. So being able to define proper the connection properties to a given data source in the web UI and that be part of the the backend data store um, is great from a security point of view, and I think that's where it came from. It has the other added benefit that you can in different environments define those connections differently. And so one of the one of the things that we've done to help testing is um, have some conventions around what we call the data store names. And on people's local dev environments, the same data store names exist that they're connected to either staging S3 buckets or they're connected to local versions of the same database. So that you can, in a, in a small way, we can run tests on some of this stuff. Um, Effectively, by running the same running the same DAGs that are pointing to the same connections, but those connections are set up differently to point to different places, and that's a really neat way of of doing some of this testing stuff within Airflow. Yeah, um, that's a, that's interesting because a lot of other people we talked to mentioned the connections panel as a pain point because it takes forever to like. There's no automated way to like input connections into it. Uh, I think I think it's one of the I think it's one of the best points about Airflow. I think that the connections abstraction uh, from those two perspectives, one of having different environments where they're set up differently and that be, be not in the code. Um, and also from a security aspect of the connection details not being in the code is also a, is a good thing uh, for data protection and, and all that jazz. Thanks to Alan for coming on and thanks to you for tuning in this week. If you haven't heard, Astronomer recently announced that we're putting our entire organizational focus on Airflow. That means that going forward, our primary goal will be to help other companies adopt Airflow. That also means that we'll be able to produce much more regular podcast episodes and other content, such as our open source library of Airflow plugins. You can head over to github.com airflow plugins if you're interested in seeing what we've been working on. And if you use Airflow regularly, we'd love to have you on the podcast. Just shoot me an email at pete at astronomer.io to get the conversation going. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll see you soon.